Welcome back to America's Constitution, our new podcast. This is episode two, Bullets Dodged, part two, The Faithless and the Feckless, with Akil Reed Amar, who is, by the way, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. I'm Andy Lipka. Welcome back, Akil. It's always great to be with you, Andy. Uh, we've made it to our second episode. <laughs> yes, indeed. So the, uh, in our first episode, as you recall, we began the topic of uh, bullets dodged, the notion being that things may, w- may well have happened or could have happened uh, during the period. Really, we wound up going all the way back to the political conventions um, up to Election Day um, that might have complicated what looks like it will now be, hopefully, a, uh, an inauguration of, uh, of Joe Biden to be our next president, Kamala Harris to be our next vice president. Um, we're, we're taping this on January 7th, 2021, which again is a, a momentous day following a momentous day. The fact is that Election Day doesn't end all of the possible complications, does it, Akil? It doesn't, um, and the statute uh, that Congress has enacted pursuant to Article 2 that says that Congress gets to uh, pass uh, statutes about the the day on which uh, uh, presidential uh, electors meet. The statute says it's kind of complicated, but I think the best way to read is 41 days after Election Day, there's the meeting of the Electoral College. It talks about the first Wednesday after the first Tuesday or the first Tuesday after the the third Wednesday. So I mean, it's a little complicated, but basically 41 days after a Tuesday election, which will either, which will range between November 2nd and November 8th. It can't ever be on November 1st. And then 41 days after that, the electors are supposed to meet in their respective states. Um, But what happens if there's some sort of horrible uh, mishap to the the, presidential candidate or the vice presidential candidate in that window? Um, And that's something that I testified about also before Congress in 1994 on on Groundhog's Day. I keep saying Groundhog's Day because it's a way for me to remember it and also because I keep reliving, you know, (laughs) that event every four years. I worry about these these issues of electoral mishap. Now, at Um, this point, you know, of course, the people will have voted. Yes. um, And therefore, they will have expressed a preference for president and for vice president. And if we're lucky, um, let's imagine... All the states uh, have basically resolved their electoral contest. It's really clear who won the popular vote in each of the 50 states and the, and the District of Columbia. So I suppose we're, we're really lucky about that because those are all sorts of other things that can go wrong. But let's imagine that all works out just fine. And um, of course, it's not always a matter of just winning the popular vote like in Nebraska and Maine. It's also by congressional district there. Correct? Oh, well, there are 48 states are winner-take-all. Two states are winner-take-most. In, in Nebraska, if you win the state, you win at least three electoral votes. Maybe you get four, maybe you get five, depending on how many uh, uh, votes you got in each congressional district. In Maine, it's winner-take-most. Maine has four electoral votes. If you win the state, you get at least three, but maybe you get four. We can talk about some of those complexities in a later podcast, all about uh, some of the intricacies of um, uh, electoral college counting in general. Um, But let's imagine uh, that there have been counting and careful recounts if needed, um, judicial challenges, carefully uh, uh, evaluating any claims of, of uh, error or impropriety. 
So let's imagine that's all worked out just uh, perfectly, bullets dodged here, there, everywhere, but, but something happens to one of our two candidates. And just imagine the worst-case scenario, um, one of our two winning candidates, the, win the seemingly winner of the uh, presidential and vice presidential contest on election day. Um, and here's a real bullet dodged. Um, various state laws purport to require the electors to vote as pledged. Otherwise, they're faithless electors, and state laws say that they can be punished. And the Supreme Court, in a, 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 a decision just last year, um, actually said those state laws in general, a case called Chiafalo v. Washington, the so-called faithless elector case, the Supreme Court said, oh, those laws are valid. Now, in fact, I think, and that was 9-0, and I think the Supreme Court goofed big time, and I'll talk about that in just a second, why I think they goofed big time. But statute seems to say, oh, you have to vote. In statutes in, in many states, they have to vote as pledged, but now let's imagine as pledged that one of the candidates is dead. Um, let's imagine, worst case scenario, candidate is who's died after election day, but before the meeting of the Electoral College, 41 days later, was the top of the ticket. The statute says you got to vote as pledged, but there's this congressional precedent that we talked about in our first session. The Greeley, from Greeley case. The Greeley precedent from 1872-73, where Congress said we won't count votes by electors who are voting for someone who's dead the day the Electoral College meets. Oh my goodness. So the statute says you have to vote for the dead guy and congressional precedent, not very well considered from 1872-73, say that's an invalid vote, we'll toss it out. And so if people voted uh, pursuant to the statute, as the Supreme Court seems to say, you know, th these statutes are valid um, um, uh, and, and people can be punished if they, if they are faithless, and then Congress doesn't count that, then the only person with electoral votes um, who's alive that do count apparently is the guy who lost, and, and none of that makes sense, and the Greeley precedent is a mistake, but, but, but people on the other side will point to the precedent, and because people are partisan in Congress, that's what we're seeing, and they'll say, well, too bad, so sad. Um, so we have the Greeley precedent that's wrong, ill-considered, no, and it, and it was, is ill-considered because Greeley had lost, so no one was paying much attention to it. And we've got this Supreme Court uh, precedent, from uh, that's from 1872-73, this Chaffalo precedent. It's also wrong and ill-considered for reasons I'll talk about. And put the two together, and oh my God, that's a problem. That was a bullet dodged, because thank God nothing happened to Joe Biden or Kamala Harris in that window between Election Day and Electoral College Meeting Day. Now, let's say that you are an elector in a state that has a, a law that says that you'll be punished if you uh, are a faithless elector. Now, God forbid, Joe Biden has died. You're going to there. Do you have the option of voting uh, for Kamala Harris and taking the punishment? Will your, will your vote count? Um, the Supreme Court didn't get into all that, but I think you could say, okay, I'll just take the hit. I'll vote um, the sensible thing, because this is what the people who picked me would want me to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll accept the punishment. So that is a possibility, but the Supreme Court acted as if these laws are actually good and valid laws, sensible laws. They dropped a footnote, footnote 8, 
They said, oh, maybe in a death situation it might be different. And, and we, uh, here's the language, a footnote eight of this opinion. For unanimous Supreme Court, it's not a great opinion. I love the author of the opinion, Elena Kagan. Oh, I adore her. But this is not a great opinion, frankly. And footnote eight um, says, um, uh, we suspect, she says, well, in, in, in recognition of this fact, some states have drafted their pledge laws, their faithless elector laws, to give elector, uh, electors uh, a voting uh, discretion when their candidate has died. CEG California election code, Indiana code, and she quotes the sections. And we suspect that in such a case, states without a specific provision would also release electors from their pledge. Well, I'm glad she suspects that, but she can't guarantee that. Still, we note that because the situation is not before us, Nothing in this opinion should be taken to permit the states to bind electors to a deceased candidate. Well, that's good. You know, she, she, she kind of punts on that. She doesn't tell us what to do. But the problem, frankly, isn't limited to someone who dies in that window. Suppose someone has a coma in mm-hmm. that window. Um, and they're going to die, or they're never going to be able to be present again. Suppose lightning strikes. Suppose, actually, um, we have massive new evidence of a Manchurian candidate on video, testimony that the, that the um, uh, uh, evidence that the candidate admits shows that he's in the pay, she's in the pay of some um, foreign enemy of the United States. The problem is created not just by death, as footnote 8 identifies in, in the Greeley precedent, but the very passage of time between election day, um, first Tuesday after the first November, and electoral college meeting day, 41 days later. Stuff happens, and in certain cases, a truly faithful elector would actually try to do what the voters would have wanted that elector to do, given the changed circumstances, given the coma, given um, the, the, the treason that's just in the hypothetical now um, undeniable and, and visible to the world. Um, so that's the more fundamental problem. Now, you say, well, then why do we have these laws? And I say, well, they're unconstitutional, and it's easy to show that they're unconstitutional, and the person who litigated the case, I love him. He's my former teaching assistant. Um, I was at his wedding, my dear friend, Larry Lessig, and he brought the lawsuit so that the Supreme Court would invalidate these faithless elector laws, and he deserved to win, and he deserved to win 9-0, and he lost 9-0, in part because, with all due respect, I'm not sure he teed up the issues perhaps as well and clearly as he could have, and the Supreme Court didn't really seem uh, particularly careful in its analysis. So what's the best argument? Point one. Let's read the constitutional text. They're called electors. Electors means people who make an election, people who make a choice, you know, who I elect to do this. How do I know that that's how, that what the word means? I look elsewhere in the Constitution. Let's look at just the, the second, the third paragraph of the Constitution. Article one, section two. There's the preamble, you know, we the people, then Article 1, Section 1, legislative power is vested in Congress. Section 2, the House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states and the electors, that's the voters, in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors, that is voters, of the most numerous branch of the state legislature. Now surely we wouldn't think, oh, because they're electors, the law can tell them how to vote in, in general um, for state legislature, for Congress. That's, so that's one point. Electors means to make a choice. Second point. 
And I might add that the word electors is still used in modern usage to refer to people that vote. Michigan, for example, if you watch the hearings uh, of the county board, mm -hmm. they referred to the people that had voted as electors. Wonderful. So it's still true today. Point two, the electoral college, when it meets, and it's not really a college, it's 51 different groups of, of folks meeting in 51 places, the state capitals of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. Um, they, the Constitution, the 12th Amendment expressly says they vote by ballot. Ballot means secret ballot, okay? Like in an envelope, just like uh, on, uh, when, when the envelopes were opened on, yesterday, we're doing this on January 7th, and the envelopes were opened on, on January uh, 6th in, in, in Congress. It's like the Oscars, but a secret ballot is precisely so that no one can see how you vote. So how could you even punish someone as being a faithless elector? Because in principle, you don't know how they vote because it's secret ballot. That's what the word ballot means, and... My friend Larry Lessig, in his brief, sort of said, we don't really place any reliance on, on, on that fact, and I think that was a mistake. That, that's actually dramatic. Now, there's a third argument I've got. The third argument is the very passage of time between presidential election day, um, uh, 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 the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and the Electoral College meeting, um, 41 days later. In that window, stuff can happen, and that's actually, it's proper for electors um, to um, respond to some compelling intervening event, and it's not limited to death. It could be, as I said, comb or something else. Now, um, uh, are, but you say, well, then they're just going to go wild. No, they won't, because in general, electors are picked, and typically carefully picked by the winning candidates. Um, um, so they're not going to go wild. Uh, Hillary Clinton actually picked Bill Clinton as one of her electors, I think, in, in New York. So they're not going to go wild. There are very few cases in American history where they've gone off the reservation. Um, and, and, but you will need them to actually deviate from what they've pledged to do in a case of a massively changed situation like death, coma, something like that. Okay, so, so the passage of time is a structural point. The... Um, uh, the fact that um, uh, the word elector is a textual point, the word ballot, meaning secret ballot, is another textual point. Um, and, uh, and let me give in now an historical point. No state at the founding ever had anything like these faithless elector laws. And indeed, states didn't start having these laws until the middle of the 20th century. And... Justice Kagan and the court thought that that was evidence of their being constitutional, whereas actually, if you care about the words of the Constitution, how they fit together in a structure, which I do, ballot, elector, 41 days, or just a gap between voting day and electoral college meeting day, when you read the thing as a system, it's interesting and revealing that no state did this until way later in the game when a lot of people sort of forgot how the system was uh, supposed to work and fit together. And you don't need these laws in general to assure that electors will do the right thing because they, sh they typically are carefully chosen by the candidate. But you say, oh, that didn't happen in 2016. A few electors, about 10, went off the reservation. Yes, 
and in part they did because actually Hillary Clinton didn't pick her electors very carefully. She was too nice. She let the party sometimes pick the electors in different states, and the party was trying to be nice to people. It was just an honorific thing, and they, they gave these elector spots to Bernie Sanders people who were never loyal to Clinton in the first place. But truthfully, that was Hillary Clinton's mistake, and that won't happen again um, precisely because we don't need a law to assure faithfulness, fidelity. The system works well enough without a law, and that's why in American history there have been very, very few faithless electors, in fact, and never one that really sort of made a difference when it shouldn't have. Now, I find your, your argument about the word ballot to be extremely persuasive, uh, because after all, how can you enforce a law if you have no idea who violated it? If all the electoral votes of a state go to X, mm-hmm. well, then you know how each elector voted. But let's imagine it's, it's you know, Maine or Nebraska, or actually they're all supposed to have voted for X. They all pledged to vote for X, but, but uh, let's say they were, it has 10 electoral votes, but actually only nine voted for X and one voted for Y. Now with ballot, you don't know which of, you know, right. the, the, the 10 was the faithless person, the defector. Right, the only way you would know is if they all were faithless. Correct. Which seems remote. Um, or, 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 all or, or none were faithless. Yeah, case, right, exactly. To punish. Right, but, exactly. All or none. But, but otherwise, you, you're not sure with the ballot unless they tell you, you know, um, who was who. So that, that's persuasive. Now, do the, do the states actually conduct the electoral uh, vote by ballot or by secret ballot now? Or do states not do that these days? Um, well, at the end, they have to because the Constitution requires it. But sometimes they try to manipulate the system by having like a preliminary vote. And if the preliminary vote doesn't quite match what people had pledged to do, then the group of electors as a whole from that state can... can um, uh, uh, be replaced by a complete second slate, or some, or they can toss out um, a majority can can expel someone if they have a suspicion about who it might have been. So some states have tried to tinker a little bit um, uh, with that, but in general, you don't need that. All you need is careful vetting of the electors, and the one case where you absolutely want them to act is where there is a compelling new piece of, 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 of information. I've been talking about the top of the ticket and the real problem when the top of the ticket dies and the Greeley precedent, which is also an ill-considered precedent, so the one of the Congress from 1870s, not the Supreme Court from last year. So um, uh, I've been talking about the death of the top of the ticket. Imagine it's the death of the bottom of the ticket. If, pursuant to the a Supreme Court case in these uh, faithless elector laws, this um, uh, uh, case out of Washington, the uh, Chiafalo case, if they have to vote for the top of the ticket, who's still alive, and the bottom of the ticket as pledged, well, that person who's at the bottom of the ticket, you know, um, that those votes aren't counted. So maybe now we're going to get the vice president from the other party, the losing party, because that's the only person that has electoral votes left. And maybe they don't have a majority, or maybe they say they have a majority of the only ones that have been counted, or in any event, it gets thrown into the Senate, which is controlled by the losing party. So all of that's complicated enough. But let's imagine, so those are bullets dodged. That didn't happen. Nothing happened to Biden. Nothing happened to Harris. But because otherwise, you know, maybe you'd end up with Trump if it if um, if it were 
um, a, a Biden death, or you'd end up with a Biden-Pence if it were a Harris death. Oh my God, that makes no sense at all. Because um, right now you see um, the Republicans actually do control the Senate. The, the Democrats will when, when the Georgia senators start to be seated, but right now they do, and, and the tie is broken by the vice president's name is Mike Pence, not, not Kamala Harris. So, so you could have had, um, if there were a death at the bottom of the ticket, some mischief, but let's imagine best case scenario. Okay, um, it's just you don't have a vice president. Um, uh, and now um, Biden is inaugurated, um, but he tries to actually fill that vice presidential vacancy. Let's imagine a world in which he doesn't control uh, his party, the, the, the House and the Senate. So then they try to make mischief um, with all of that. Um, and in the meantime, if something happens to him, we have the current presidential succession law, which says it's the Speaker of the House. Let's imagine that that's actually of the opposite political party. That's very mischievous. Those of you who are fans of the TV show The West Wing know that this came up not actually once, but twice. Andy's a big West Wing fan, so I'm going to ask you if you, you remember either of the situations where it came up. Well, I remember, and I guess it was around the end of the fourth season, third or fourth season, um, that uh, the vice president, John Hoynes, uh, is caught with, uh, with serial infidelity, and he uh, resigns. Um, and he resigns summarily. So it's basically effective immediately. And subsequently, the, so they, they have yet to fill the seat, and then the president is in a compromising position and steps aside under the 25th Amendment. And as a result, you have the Speaker of the House uh, filling that role. Right. And, and my thought was the following, that it would have been, that's one episode that, um, and we'll talk more about presidential succession later, but you see, you can't think about presidential election without thinking about presidential succession. They're connected. Right. Uh, you have to think about the Constitution as a whole. Elector, ballot, 41-day difference. See, see the whole system, um, which none of the Supreme Court justices did, in my view. Um, but... Um, if Hoynes in that hypothetical had simply said, I will resign upon the naming of my successor, that would have put more pressure on Congress to quickly process um, the president's nomination of a successor when the Congress is controlled by the opposite party whose Speaker of the House is kind of next in line under the current, I think, mistaken succession laws. But, but, but the other one that we did talk about in our last session is easier and, and we'll link up now. Right. So in that case, you have the vice presidential candidate, Leo McGarry, dying on election day. Um, so, of course, there's a number of, of questions raised right then. Should it be disclosed? You know, or not? Do they have a you know legal obligation? Do they have a moral obligation? If if they do disclose it, should they instruct their uh, their voters to vote for Leo anyway? Can they put another candidate up in you know no time? Uh, should they try to get the election postponed somehow? Uh, if that could even happen, um, and then w when that is is finished, and it turns out that uh, Sant the Santos McGarry team wins. Matt Santos and, yes. and, and the dead Leo McGarry. Matt played by Jimmy Smits and, yes, and, and, and the dead Leo McGarry. Right, sort of a proto-Barack Obama uh, in, in those days. Um, yes, running on a hope campaign. Um, um, uh, a young, um, uh, uh, non-white, um, uh, uh, charismatic uh, figure, but very much um, modeled on 
uh, 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 then um, uh, young Barack Obama, who hadn't, you know, thrown his hat into the presidential ring, of course. So then the question becomes, okay, now now what do we do with the vice presidential vacancy? And they consider various scenarios, which I think... uh, And and again, they make the mistake. Okay, so Matt Santos says, okay, Um, he's told that his electors won. You know, he won 270 or 271 electoral votes, just barely, but he won electoral votes, and they were for the ticket. They were for the Santos-McGarry ticket. Now McGarry is dead. Under the rules, since they're there, his electors, and just put aside faithless elector laws just for a second, because remember, the Supreme Court case has, uh, hasn't, uh, in its alternative universe, um, uh, well, it doesn't exist in real life or in this alternative universe, the Chaffalo case. So he's told, and I think he's right, these electors are basically pledged to you. You handpicked them, and the party, you know, with your um, input, handpicked the electors. You control 270 or 271. You can tell them to vote for what's the name of the Baker is his yeah, name. Baker. He, he wants this guy Preferred named Baker, candidate, governor okay. of Pennsylvania. Yes, but the issue is that okay. he's that just to tee it up a little bit that he would be a likely successor to Santos as a presidential candidate. In other words, he was he barely lost in the in the primaries. He'd be a good vice president then, right? But he would might be a hard confirm if they had to confirm him. Ah, Santos thinks that the best person would be a guy named Baker, and he's told you can actually tell your electors to vote for Santos Baker because McGarry's dead. And again, if there are no faithless elector laws that, that, that are constitutionally valid, electors get to make an election. They're pledged to you. You're telling them this is what you want to do, apostolic succession. But he is persuaded, oh, that's not great because the voters weren't told about all of that. So I'm going to actually leave the bottom of the ticket vacant I'll be sworn in as president, and then after Inauguration Day, I'll nominate Baker under the 25th Amendment, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that way he'll have to be actually uh, confirmed. He'll have a, a, a democracy test by the confirmation. Once again, that was a mistake in my view, uh, you know, analytically, um, because the opposition party controls Congress to some extent, and they're going to not love, or even if they don't, there are going to be a lot of Republicans who don't love Baker, who's going to be a plausible um, uh, replacement eventually. So, um, and, and if they control um, the, the House of Representatives and the Speaker is actually a Republican, if something happens to Santos, oh, too bad, so sad, but then we, we're, we're in office. But if instead he'd said, I'm putting Baker in, and I'm going to actually have him resign upon the, nomin- the confirmation of his successor under the 25th Amendment, and I nominate him to be his own successor under the 25th Amendment, then there's you know, pressure, on, uh, then, then, then the, the opposition party can't make mischief here. Or if he didn't want to put Baker in temporarily, he could have put in anyone else, but who is a loyal Democrat, maybe who's not nearly as good as Baker, and then people are going to say, oh, goodness, we don't want that person as the number two. We're going to confirm Baker because he would be very good. But... but Now back to the real world. My claim is, if something had happened to Biden, this is a bullet dodged, right before the meeting of the Electoral College, that would have been disastrous. And, and, and if it happened within 24 hours, the Electoral College doesn't even know who they're voting on. They're, they're voting in 51 different places simultaneously, unless they're on a listserv or something. Who's going to tell them what to do and, and how to operate? Um, sh- 
I, presumably, if something happened to Biden, they should vote for Harris, okay? Because she really, she's, she would be the number two if something happens after inauguration. But are they all going to do that? Do these faithless elector laws allow them to do that? Because they, they're pledged to Biden, not Harris. So th there's mass confusion. Should, can, can they be allowed to postpone the thing for at least a day to, to coordinate? Okay, so all that's bad if something had happened to Biden, which, thank God, it didn't. But my claim is, even if something had merely happened to Harris, um, let's imagine she's dead, that's a problem too, because you, we could end up with Biden-Pence or Biden-nothing, you know, just a blank, and then actually you have the 25th Amendment process after inauguration, and if, this, this actually wasn't true, but if the, the House was controlled by the opposition party, in fact, it isn't Nancy. It's controlled by Nancy Pelosi. Um, but 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 if it weren't, um, they're going to drag their feet in a 25th Amendment process. Even now, Nancy Pelosi might say, "Oh, of course." If something, God forbid, it happened to to Harris, she might say, "Well, of course, we'll process your um, vice presidential nominee." But you know, she might. She's in charge of the pace of the House of Representatives. She she might not have actually processed, processed it as quickly, because if something happens, she's president of the United States, and you can say, he's on drugs, he's hallucinating, and I'm telling you, my friends, I'm not hallucinating, this has happened. Twice in American history, the 25th Amendment has been invoked when Nixon nominated Ford, who was eventually confirmed, and then Nixon resigned, Ford became president, and Ford nominated Rockefeller. Both times, the House of the, the, the Congress basically dragged its feet and took a long time to confirm because um, the Speaker of the House, who was otherwise next in line, was a Democrat. Um, and if something happened, you know, in, in the interim, it would it would the presidency would go to a Democrat, and and that's not a good system. Mm -hmm. So, you've identified these problems. And we do have this faithless elector issue, but if we put that aside for a moment, um, wouldn't it be prudent, wouldn't it have been prudent to, in the recent period between the election and the meeting of the Electoral College for the Biden campaign to prepare for this eventuality? In other words, to perhaps instruct the electors in case something happens, you should do this or that? I think Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, should have had actually a very confidential list created by Biden, Harris themselves about what, to ha what should happen in various contingencies. They could have kept that pretty close to the, the vest, um, but they sh and I don't know if they did or didn't, but that would have been good practice. Now, the American people are cut out of the loop and all that. Remember my alternative... Um, uh, suggestion is the American people are told not just Biden Harris but in effect who they who will be number three whether it's Secretary of State or someone else because the presidential succession statute should be changed so that it shouldn't be the Speaker of the House but some officer and if that's true then actually the electors know what to do okay vote for Biden and, um, and um, Biden Harris and if something happens to Biden um, vote for Harris Smith you know, or if something happens to Smith, vote, for, I mean, something happens to Harris, vote for, for Biden Smith, because it's all been actually told to um, the voters who have kind of pre-approved all of this. That's not where we are today, but maybe that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, now, we haven't gotten yet to the counting of electoral votes, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, when we finally get to Congress. 
Right, and I think we're going to address that in our next uh, episode. Okay, so um, so next we're going to talk about uh, the actual count of the electoral votes, which of course is what happened yesterday. Exactly, um, and again, bullets dodged. Um, no death or disability or mishap, and if there had been, we, you know, the, all the issues of the Greeley precedent, you know, possibly once more, um, how to improvise in that situation, you know, might have arisen. In Amar's world, once the electors have actually voted, and let's imagine everyone was actually alive on election, uh, on the day that the electors met, okay, there might actually be an ambiguity about um, whether they're alive or not. Um, but if surely they were alive, the Greeley precedent doesn't apply. The Greeley precedent, which is a mistaken precedent, but it's easily distinguishable if you say, well, people can't vote for, knowingly for someone who, whom they know to be dead. You know? um, but if the person was actually dead, but they didn't know it, that's obviously different. Or, you could say, or definitely if they weren't dead and everyone knew they were alive, they were only in a coma, yes, theoretically, um, I mean, they weren't going to come back, but theoretically they could. The Greeley precedent is irrelevant. Um, so if a death happens after the Electoral College has met, let's again say, you know, in this grisly uh, set of hypotheticals that um, we've been envisioning, and again, I've been envisioning them since 1994, and I, I, this is not personal at all to, to the current candidates. We're just using them as illustrations of bullets, bullets dodged. If, God forbid, something had happened to, to Joe Biden in that window, in a Mars sensible world, the Greeley precedent would be repudiated. Republicans wouldn't have made any mischief. They would just actually, um, the votes for Biden would have been counted as valid. Because that's they can't change the who the electors actually actually voted for um, in mid December, but those were valid electoral votes, and all that would mean is on inauguration day, Kamala Harris would take the oath rather than Joe Biden, right? Um, as if Biden had passed away one minute after inauguration rather than, let's say, one minute before the um, Congress met to count the votes or one minute after the Electoral College met. I mean, that certainly is, the, is consistent with the expectation of the voter at the time that they cast their ballot. Yeah. I'm voting for Joe Biden. If he winds up dying, Kamala Harris will be president. Right. And, but with the Greeley precedent on the books and our toxic political environment of taking no prisoners and taking advantage of everything... I ask my audience, can you be sure that the Republicans wouldn't have tried to make mischief with all that, saying, oh, well, we believe in law and the, the Greeley precedent and, and blah, 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 even though it's obviously distinguishable. But, and I have to tell you, this was worrying me. This was keeping me up at night. So I, so I, I exhaled yet again. Um, I exhaled on uh, uh, election day or in that window, election period. I exhaled a second time when we made it to the meeting of the Electoral College without any Greeley mishap. I exhaled yet again when we make it to the counting of electoral votes. And here's the other bullet that we dodged. There were some people saying outlandish things like the, the vice president um, can decide just to toss aside any electoral votes that he deems improper. Mike Pence did none of that, and good for him, an American patriot on that issue. 
Um, you can disagree with him about other things, and I and I do, and you'll hear about that probably in later episodes, but he did the right thing. The Constitution's text doesn't give him authority just to disregard electoral votes he doesn't like. Our precedents don't do anything like that. Vice president after vice president as presiding officer, um, um, whether we're talking about Richard Nixon or Hubert Humphrey or Al Gore or Joe Biden, have actually certified results that were deeply painful for the, to them. Nixon in 1960, Humphrey in 68, um, uh, uh, Al Gore in 2000, Biden in 2016. So our precedents, in fact, are clear that vice presidents don't um, a monkey with that. And the structure of the Constitution is clear, which is what people properly said yesterday. It would be preposterous to allow one person who might be running for president or vice president himself to be able to undo the votes of millions. The framers would never have set up that system and did not. So that was a bullet dodged, even though some people, including President Trump, were trying to, to push this preposterous idea that Pence could just disregard all that. Well, Big know, bullet dodged. And then I'll tell you the other bullet dodged. You know, the, you might say if on the other side, well, you know, if this is a purely ministerial function, you know, why do it at all? You know, why does the vice president have to do it at all? And therefore, he must actually have a real function, and perhaps the real function is, you know, X. But what I say is, when we talk, when you're talking now about Richard Nixon, Al Gore, you know, these are people who had good cause to be disturbed about the function they were performing, not just because they had run for president, but because they might, ha they might reasonably think that they deserve to have won their election mm -hmm. for one reason or another. Nevertheless, they perform this function. And when we talk about it now, we get a warm and fuzzy feeling about it because it is a testimony to the fact that, like Angela Merkel said today, that in an election you have winners and losers and both have a role to play in our democracy. And I think that's the function that Mike Pence played is, the, is following in the great tradition of, you know, people like Al Gore. Well said. The other bullet, amen. Um, I could say amen and amen, but I won't. Uh, I didn't. Um, uh, the other bullet dodged was that the Electoral Count Act um, was actually sort of followed, um, uh, uh, which provides a vehicle for processing possible challenges to the electoral certifications of the states. Another bullet dodged was every state sent one, one set of certifications. So there weren't any dueling uh, slates of electors or anything like that has, has happened in American history after the Civil War in 1876, for example. Um, but a statute provides for a mechanism by which a senator and a representative can, can raise a, an objection, and there's a process for evaluating uh, the, those objections um, with uh, deliberations and votes in each house. Here's the bullet dodged. It has been argued by some scholars, not completely preposterously, um, that there are some constitutional issues with that Electoral Count Act. But no one made mischief on that. They all followed it, um, Republican and Democrat, uh, uh, House member and Senate member. And one of the reasons they did is that even if there's some constitutional problems, the text isn't overwhelmingly clearly on the other side. The structure of the Constitution isn't overwhelmingly clearly on the other side. And we've had this statute in place 
for presidential election after presidential election for a century and a half. It's been followed again and again, and it's a much more established precedent. And and we're going to talk in this podcast about originalism. I have already um, uh, uh, today talked about ballot, elector, um, uh, the timing issues. But, but sometimes if the text and the structure aren't clear, precedent is really, and the original history, precedent is really important. Here the precedent is created by a statute that's been followed again and again and again, and it, it's a focal point. It's a basis for basically all political parties and all political partisans to actually coordinate their behavior with attention to a statute that actually specifies a little bit more clearly who does what in the counting. What's basically the role of the vice president, pretty ministerial, ceremonial, like in the Oscars, open the envelope. Um, but that's about it. If there's any question about what's inside the envelope, a process for the House, a process for the Senate, um, and that statute was not challenged by anyone, but was followed faithfully by everyone on January 6th. And that was another bullet dodged because you could imagine actually um, uh, some challenges to that. And we didn't have Steve Harvey opening the envelope, so we were in good <laughs> shape there as well. But also I think, you know, if you were going to challenge the, the act on its constitutionality, the time to do it is not five minutes before you open the envelope. Absolutely, when you've lost. Correct. Yes. So there's, you know, the having a focal point and trying to deviate from it is bad faith if it's done at the last minute. It's obviously bad faith. And and so since we're using fancy language like focal point, um, which comes from Thomas Schelling in game theory, we could also invoke, uh, uh, and, and he's an economist, he was an economist, Schelling, we can invoke the great philosopher John Rawls. Um, the rules should basically be um, adopted a kind of behind a veil of ignorance before we know whether they're going to favor the Democrat or the Republican in the next election. Great. So um, in our next episode, we're going to talk about uh, a bullet that wasn't dodged. The big bullet that was not dodged, yes. And do you want to tee that up at all for us? The most important thing of all is picking the right person for president and I wonder whether we did that in 2016. In fact, truthfully, I think we did not do that. And some of the mischief and the anxiety um, that we're having in this uh, electoral season, um, from election day all the way to inauguration day, and we haven't gotten to inauguration day yet, um, and frankly, um, that we've been having for the last four years has been a result of the fact that I think we chose wrongly the last time around, and I'll tell you why I think we did and what I said at the time uh, about all that and why, frankly, ever since Election Day 2016, I haven't been able to properly, fully exhale. Um, and I still can't because we're recording this on January 7th, and I still got to make it. We all have to make it until January 20th.